This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It is great to see you here today. I'm Pastor Ron, and we are studying the great book of Revelation. I get to be your tour guide for the next several weeks, and my hope is to take a book in the Bible that I find to be very confusing for most people and try to make it a little bit clear. Now, I say a little bit clearer. I don't have any assumptions up here this morning that I would be able to answer every question you have in the book of Revelation, but I do hope that we could study this and learn this together and make it a little bit clearer. One of the ways in which uh, you can engage in this series is last week I challenged everyone to read the book of Revelation and very simply to read it one chapter a day. Just one's enough, read one chapter, and then the next day read the next chapter. And uh, if you did that, I hope that's going well for you. If you haven't, you can start this week. In fact, you're going to find this morning that we're only in Revelation chapter 2. As you're reading along, you might find the text to be a little dizzy. You might have a lot of questions, and that's okay. In fact, we learned last week that we're blessed just simply by reading these words. I'll be honest with you, as your pastor, I can't think of a better time uh, that as a church that we would read and try to understand these words. In fact, I get asked all the time, hey, pastor, are we, are we living in the end times? Well, we most certainly are. In fact, every generation is closer to the end than the one before it. And by that, I mean you can start to see, and things seem kind of challenging. I don't know about you. I look at our world today, and whether it be geopolitical unrest, I mean, you name it, right? I mean, there's China and Russia and the Ukraine, or you look around our own country and you just see kind of this sense of things kind of slipping. Is there this slouching of immorality? And I don't know, maybe for some, you you kind of see this next election cycle and you think, oh, Jesus, please come back soon. Amen? Right? Like, it just seems like it feels like we're living in that time. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to read about a church that gets a letter from Jesus. And this letter is sort of a report card. It kind of highlights the things the church is doing really well and the things that the church needs to improve on. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, I would love for you to follow along this morning. I am going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, uh, the ESV translation. All the words on the screen are going to be from the ESV. Just a slightly different translation than the Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. I think it's a little better uh, translation for this book of the Bible. So we'll be there. And as you're making your way there, I want you, I want you to think about maybe hazards in the workplace for a moment. I don't know if you realize this, but every job has sort of an occupational hazard, right? There's sort of inherent risk. Some jobs are way more dangerous than others. Got me thinking about this. I don't know if you, if you watched any of this weekend, but it was the NFL draft. And it got me thinking about these, these young football players that are coming out of the college ranks. Young man like Bryce Young, drafted number one out of Alabama, roll tide, you know. And he, he's going to the NFL and... He's going to make a lot of money in the NFL, provided one thing happens. He avoids getting hit a lot, right? Like, he'll make a lot of money if he can sling the ball downfield and avoid getting hit. And this is an occupational hazard for a quarterback, right? I mean, they're defenseless. They've, they've got to throw the ball. And the guy on the other side of the ball is trying to do his absolute best to knock this guy unconscious, right? I mean, it's a violent sport. I would say that the game of football, especially at this level, has some occupational hazards. I'll give you another one. This one uh, is more relatable to me. Uh, For a part of time, I was an engineer, and I served in the uh, paper industry, worked uh, for a number of years in the paper industry. And my day 
looked a lot like this. I, I worked in and out of large manufacturing uh, industries and, and power plants, and they made these big, huge rolls of paper, incredibly dangerous. In fact, the machinery that it takes to make this paper is, is very large, uh, it's very dangerous, there's a lot of uh, points where you could lose a limb. In fact, uh, in my short time in the paper industry, I was on site of two paper mills that had deaths on the day I was there. In fact, in one day, uh, I was no further than from here to the front row, and a person got sucked into the machine and died in that moment. Very, very dangerous. There's some occupational hazards in paper manufacturing. Uh, maybe a little bit, maybe a little differently, when do your hobbies become occupational hazards? I don't know, take a simple hobby like juggling. Seems like juggling would be pretty, you know, hazard-free. But there's always a next level, right? Like, I mean, when do you decide that I must take on the task of juggling chainsaws that are operating, right? Like, this guy just recently set the world record um, 105 catches of running chainsaws. I guess you got to catch them because if you don't, you're, you're losing a, a finger or an arm or your neck. I don't know. Just very, very dangerous. Now, I say all that. Because now I want you to think about the church. What's the occupational hazard of the church? And by the church, I don't just simply mean the building and four walls and, and some people that are on the staff, but I actually mean what's the occupational hazard of a group of people like ourselves, people that are all following after Jesus, trying to find their way in faith. What could the dangers be? I, I would venture... Yes, that in our day and age, the dangers are not physical, right? We've read a lot about the first century church, and it was dangerous to be a Christian. They hung Christians on crosses. We don't really have that threat today. But what about maybe some of the other dangers? What about the dangers of your heart? What could the danger be to your soul if the group, the church, lost its way? What if the church maybe just kind of let some things sort of slide, didn't really care about the lost or sharing their faith or teaching truth in the church? What if the church kind of lost its way and said, you know what, it's really not that important if you, if you give generously so we can extend our reach around the world. It really doesn't matter if you serve. Could you tend to guess what the dangers would be? I'll tell you this morning, it would be deadly to your soul. It would damage you to the ways in which you're called to follow God faithfully. And that's why the mission here of this church has never changed. For all of our time here, our mission has been to turn spiritually hungry people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I think this is the most all-encompassing mission statement a church could have. This is really saying that everyone is on a journey. And together, collectively, we care not just about our own personal journey, but we care about each other's ways in which they're trying to grow to be fully devoted in the way in which you follow Jesus. And what I love about the book of Revelation is it sort of disrupts your thinking. It kind of gets you out of maybe just thinking about yourself or being content in your own spiritual journey. Call it spiritual navel-gazing, right? Like, it gets you beyond that, and it gets you to focus on the future and the return of Jesus Christ. He's coming back for his church, for the people who are sold out and devoted to him. And he's coming back, and we call this prophecy. This is being future-focused. And that's what the author of Revelation, a guy by the name of John, is tasked with doing, of, of capturing this prophecy of the end so that we could live with this end in mind. 
And I really hope you get to know John, this author. He's, at this point in his life, he's a pastor. He's, he's quite advanced in his age. He's probably 80, maybe 85 years of, of age. Um, John, at this point, should be retired. He should be kicking back. But instead, instead of retirement, John gets um, persecution. Uh, he is very close to being martyred. In fact, uh, he is boiled alive in oil. That doesn't kill him. So Nero, uh, I'm sorry, um, the emperor Domitian takes him and exiles him off to an island called Patmos. It was essentially a prison because you could not get off the island and get back to the mainland. You could think of it as sort of an Alcatraz in their day. And he's just sort of left there. And as he's at his kind of his lowest point in his faith, Jesus comes to him and gives him this future, this vision of what life is like. In fact, I know the book of Revelation could be so confusing, but actually I want to show you a really simple outline for this book. In fact, you can kind of outline and divide this book into three very distinct parts. We actually read this last week, but I had so much to cover that I saved it for this week. In fact, we get this outline in Revelation 1, verse 19. Jesus says to John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Those three words I underline, what you've seen, what are, and what are to take place after this are three very clear divisions in the book of Revelation. So what are the things that John has seen? Well, we covered that last week. Jesus visits him, and, and, G, and Jesus is described in such clarity by John. And those are the things that John has seen. He has seen Jesus. He's seen those burning eyes and the white like wool hair, the sword coming out of his mouth. John, write those things down, what you've seen. And that is essentially the division of Revelation chapter 1. And then he says, write down the things that are. Those are sort of the current events, kind of what's happening in the world that John is experiencing right then and right now. And that is Revelation chapters 2 and chapter 3. These are these reports that are given to these seven churches, seven letters for seven churches. We're going to cover one of them today. And then what's to take place after this? In your Bible, that would be Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 22. And that's probably where most of the confusion comes from the book because, again, it's looking out into the future. So today what I want to do is I want to focus on the things that are. I want to kind of talk about the current events in John's day. In fact, as I said, there's these seven letters, and they're given to these seven churches. The church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches. There were more churches in that day than just these, but these were the ones that John was responsible for. And we're going to look just at one church today, the church in Ephesus. It's an amazing church. And they get this letter, and this letter is intended not just for the pastor. It's not like, dear pastor. It's intended to be read so that the whole church would know, hey, here's the things that you're doing really well in the community, and here's the things that you need to work on. And we're only going to cover this week Ephesus, and then in a couple weeks come back and we'll cover the last church, Laodicea. I believe, uh, just in my quiet time with God, that these two churches are, are really what I feel we need the most here at Bridgeway to learn from. So, I'm excited to give you some history on this incredible church in Ephesus. Hopefully you found your way to Revelation chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. Jesus says to John, he says this, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, just real quick recap from last week. These seven stars, we've already been told these are seven angels. This is an angel over each of the churches. You could think of messengers, messengers back to the church. And then these seven golden lampstands are these seven individual churches. Okay, he goes on, and now he gives them, let's say, report card part A. He says this. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Um, this is a great church in the city of Ephesus, and it's a growing and multiplying church because it's been led extremely well. In fact, Ephesus would have been a really large city. It would have had kind of all the modern traps and perils of large cities today. You can think of Ephesus, and you can think of a modern-day L.A. or Atlanta or Chicago. It would have been a large city. And the church is not just a mishap. It actually has great influence in the city. It gets started by a guy named Paul. He visits the city, plants the church, and teaches it really, really well. In fact, uh, legend has it that when Paul would get up on Sunday to preach, he would preach four-hour sermons. I like that, right? Like, who gets to do that? Like, what a great job. And Paul leads it so well that they kind of become known for this center of teaching. In fact, out of Ephesus come some really amazing teachers, uh, not only Paul, but his understudy Timothy. And then on top of that, uh, kind of a husband-wife dynamic duo, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they come out of that church. And then a, a really amazing guy, kind of a young up-and-comer, a guy by the name of Apollos. Teach, they were just really, really great teachers. And in this part of the report, Jesus kind of notices how good this church is doing. He says, I know your works. They worked really hard in that church. I know your toil. They worked endlessly. And your patient endurance. I read this part in the letter, and every time I just kind of get this smile on my face because I know so many people in the church who, who serve faithfully, and, and they work really hard. And they're not on staff. They're not getting a paycheck. They, they toil in the way they serve. They're patient in, in enduring in serving the church. It could be someone who's greeting at the door or grinding up coffee beans as we talked about this morning or someone serving behind the scenes. And there's this tendency in the church to kind of wonder, hey, I'm serving, I'm part of this community, but does anyone even notice what I'm doing? And I got to tell you, this is like the most amazing word because even if nobody else ever notices, it's really clear in this text that, that Jesus notices. He notices every work, every toil, every patient endurance in the community. This church is really working hard in that way. And then he goes on to highlight what I think they're even better at, which he says that you've, you have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. You know what he's highlighting here? He's saying, hey, church, what you're really good at is you can sniff out a fake. You know people who are false witnesses, false teachers. You know people that are just kind of faking it till they make it. And they're coming in with their own agenda and their own ideas, and they're leading people away. You're really good, Ephesus, at spotting a fake and getting them out of the church. In fact, this would have been necessary in this church in Ephesus because there would have been um, a lot of people in that community that 
uh, had a previous way of either uh, idolatry or pagan worship. There were a lot of false teachers in the city of Ephesus. In fact, um, a lot of this stems from the Greek mythology that was so rich. One of the largest buildings in the city of Ephesus was the temple to the goddess Artemis. Artemis was everything to this city. Uh, you went to this temple and you paid your respects and your money to Artemis because she was the goddess of war. She was the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of fertility. You went here constantly. In fact, this place, uh, many historians would say that this place might have become kind of the first bank, uh, banking center, because of all the money that was exchanged there. Uh, they actually had coins that were minted 800 years before the church was ever in that town uh, to give to Artemis. That was sort of the commerce of the day. Sort of the dark side of the temple, though, was it served also as a brothel. A lot of the activity around the temple was prostitution. And now you have this little church, and it gets started, and it's being taught sound doctrine and love of Lord and purity of your heart, and this little city becomes, becomes changed by it. And people actually stop going to the brothel. They stop engaging in prostitution because they want to be a part of the church, and they know that that's not right, and it actually causes such an uproar. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19 that there's this riot that ensues. In fact, the silversmiths in the town, they get mad at Paul and at the church because they're taking away his business. All the Christians, they're like, we don't need these fake pagan idols. We don't need these silver figurines to Artemis. We serve the one true God. And it causes this huge uproar. You can kind of see this church is in a really tough spot. It's swimming against the culture of its day. And it's being commended, hey, you got really good doctrine. You really know how to teach well. And then comes the second half of the report card. And here's where they get highlighted in the things they must improve. Picking back up in Revelation 2, verse 4. Jesus says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this I have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now he actually has actually one more thing in there that he commends them for. He says that you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, God says. And we don't really know anything about the Nicolaitans, so I'm not going to spend time there. It's proposed that they were also false teachers. That would kind of fit with why um, they're being highlighted there. But the big transition in this part of the report card is they get outed. Uh, it says in verse 4 that God holds this against them. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Uh, one commentator that I really appreciate it put it this way. He said, you could translate it as, you no longer love me as you once did. And I'll tell you, all this week I, I sat with this verse and I've read this many times before and I, I thought to myself how, how simple this verse is, right? That you have abandoned your first love. It's not hard to translate or understand what he means. But the more I sat with this, I, I found this to just be terrifying because it's saying to this church that's so smart and has all these things going for it that you can, you can think you're doing everything right, but if you miss this one thing, you've missed it all. 
right? I mean, you can, you can be great at doctrine. You can know your way around the Bible. You can be really well studied and say all the right things around just the right people. But if they aren't motivated from a place of love for God, then you've completely missed the mark. I, I was thinking this week, if, if Ephesus were a cake, it's missing the main ingredient. It's missing this love. And he calls it the first love. And I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm a romantic at heart. I hear those words, first love, and I, I don't know. I, I think that when I was younger, it just seems so simple. I mean, I don't even dare guess how dating and relationships work today. But back when I was a kid, when I was in high school, it was really simple. I remember falling in love. I had had other girlfriends, but I, I fell in love with one girl. Had this crush on this one girl. And I saw her, and it just blew me away. Her name is Sean, and I happened to marry this one girl. But this is way back when we were in high school. And my palms would get sweaty when I would see her. And, and, and I would just think, I, I have to ask her out on a date. And to my shock, she actually said, yes, I'll go out with you on a date. My, home, my palms got really sweaty then, right? Like, it just kind of went up a notch. And I thought about how that, that first love, how everything had to be so so perfect on my end, right? Like, I remember going out on our first date and I had this old beat-up car. It was a 1978 Oldsmobile Delta 88. That's how old it was. And it had, like, holes in the floorboard, but I still, I got out my vacuum. I vacuumed that car. I made sure there was no dirt anywhere in that car. I'd never vacuumed that car before I met Sean. But I wanted everything to be right. I, I made sure I had my nicest shirt on and made sure I didn't smell, and, you know, took her out, and I paid for everything. I brought her flowers. We went to prom that year, our junior year, and now I think about that, and I don't know, I've known her for 20, 30, almost 40 years of my life, and maybe, maybe she could actually come up here and give a report of how I've done over that time. That'd be a great message for a totally different day, like not today, but she could give that report, and that's what God is doing. He's sort of coming up, and he's given a report. And he's saying, how about me? Do you remember when you first had that crush on me as your God? No, we're not talking about little high school romance. We're talking about God, the one that saves you, the one that forgives you, the one that lifts you up out of the muck and the mire and gives your life purpose and meaning. And God is saying, do you remember? I mean, do you even remember when we first started dating and I want to press into this for a moment. I actually want you to think about this. Do you remember when you first gave your life to Jesus? Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember maybe your first prayers to God? Do you remember just thinking like, oh, God is listening and he's hearing, he's hanging on my every word. Do you remember maybe the first messages you heard? You felt like, oh, everything, everything that the pastor says, it just speaks right to my heart. Every scripture, every page I turn, it's, it's for me. You hear songs that are sung by the band and you're like oh that's my favorite that's my new favorite song and then the next week they play another song oh that's my new favorite song you were just so alive do you remember the first time you you served or maybe you you gave sacrificially it just seemed like everything just sort of lined up and it just brought you closer and closer to God and there's something wicked about time time kind of creates this apathy where we forget and we lose that first love. I think especially today, I mean, you think about 
about God and, and that idea of it being your first love, it's so easy to let that slip. In fact, even just thinking about the church, I mean, you, you think about how, oh, you know, I don't have to serve. It's, it's not really necessary. Who would even know if I didn't show up? I mean, in the age of online viewing, like, who would even know? Or, well, I mean, does it even matter if I pray? And, well, if I, I don't like what that person on the stage is saying and preaching, well, then, you know, I'll just go to the next church. And if I don't like the songs that that church sings, well, I'll just go to the next church. And there's almost this kind of this feeling in our culture that, that love is sort of disposable. It's not worth fighting for. It's not worth, like, making the effort to strive towards. And then Jesus comes to this church, and we're talking about the occupational hazard. Let me ask you, do you want to know what the hazard is of a church that loses its way? I'll tell you very clearly, Ephesus is a warning. It's a reminder. It shows you the dangers. You want to know what can happen if you lose your first love? It could be deadly. In fact, this church in Ephesus is no more. You can't visit it. You can't email it. There's none of it. It's gone. Jesus did come and take away their lampstand, and the people in that church suffered. But that's why this letter is being written. It's this generosity and graciousness of Jesus to give them time. I love what he says here at the end of this verse. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. There's kind of this cadence to it. Remember, repent, and return. Remember your first love. Repent, turn away from all those other lesser loves and do what you did at first. I believe this message is for us, church. I believe this is for us to remember and repent and return to our first love as well. I want to give you a a real simple way to remember this message today. And more than the message, to remember your first love. If God is your first love, then I want to make it really easy for you today. And uh, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do this with me um, because if only I do this, I'll look really stupid. So we all have to do this together. Do this for me. Take your right hand. Everyone can do this. And I want you to take your right hand. I want you to slide it up and I want you to see if you have an ear on the right side of your head. Does everyone, do you feel an ear on the right side? Everyone got that? Hold on to your ear for just a second. And we're going to read verse 7 in Revelation 2. Next slide. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what, he, what the Spirit says to the churches. So everyone's got an ear. Okay, you can kind of let that one go for a sec. Shake it out, right? Shake it out. And now take your left hand. Do this with me. And reach up and go ahead. Everybody, I, I look really stupid if I do this alone. Do you, do you feel an ear on the left side of your head? Okay, good. You can put your hand down now. Now let me just check, kind of a wellness check in the community. Did everyone have at least one ear when they reached up? Did everyone, everyone did? Nobody's missing an ear? Okay, good news, then you've all qualified, right? We're all in. Nobody is left out on this one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see the difference here? It's not just Ephesus that he's talking to. It's plural, the churches, here today, every single one of us. If you have an ear, you can return to this God who loves you. And I want to give you some questions. And my hope this week was maybe, you know, as you're going through your week, you might start thinking about how your day is going, how your relationship with others are going, how your relationship with God is going. And maybe you you reach up and you, you, you remember that you have that ear. You can always return. And the way in which you can do so is through these questions that I want to give you. You might want to write these down or you can take a picture of them on the screen. The first question is, is really one about love. Do I love God out of duty or out of devotion. Duty are sort of the things that maybe I don't get that excited about, but I sort of have to do them, 
right? Duties are like, well, I got to go to work and I got to pay my taxes. Things that maybe I don't get excited about, but I, I need to do them. Devotion comes from a completely different place. It comes from this idea of, I want to do these things. I want to spend time with God. I want to serve, serve God. I want to read his word. I want to grow. I want to become fully devoted. Maybe just take a few moments now and, and just kind of, you know, just kind of give a self-assessment. Is your love for God more out of duty or out of devotion? Next question I want you to think about is, is one really of motivation. Is my love motivated by performance or passion? And this is really important because performance is sort of the things that people see on the outside. And I'll tell you, we're really good performers, right? I mean, we'll put our best out there for people to see. And passion is different. It kind of comes from the inside. It oozes from the inside out. Performance is, well, I will say certain things and I will do certain things because I'm around a certain group of people. When I'm around my Christian friends, well, then I've got to be like a superhero Christian. But if I'm not around them, or even if I'm alone, then who knows what I, I look at or click on or participate in. And that's all about performance. Instead, we're called to have this passion. And really, passion is more than emotions. Passion is saying, I want to love the things that Jesus loves. I want to care about the things that Jesus cares about. You want to know what Jesus cares about? He cares about not only us loving God, but loving each other well. Loving each other well in the sense that we are quick to forgive and quick to move forward in unity and in love for one another. That's the passion that we've been called to live by. Third question, you can kind of use this one again to assess yourself. And on this, I want to invite the worship team to come up. But it's really, again, a one of desire. Do I desire information about God or intimacy with God? See, this was the problem in Ephesus. They were all about information. They were all about head knowledge and doctrine and knowing their Bibles. And they did a really poor job of being intimate, close to God. And so he's saying to them again, return, remember and repent and return. And this should lead us into worship. Uh, last week, we talked about kind of this image of Jesus, how, how I really want for you to be able to form the image of Jesus in your mind, to begin to use the ways in which the Bible describes Jesus and to form Jesus in your mind at any time so that you can worship him in your heart in any way that you need to. Maybe even this morning, you're kind of reminded of, of just this picture of Jesus and you begin to worship him now. You might be thinking, well, I thought, Pastor, I thought you wanted me reading the book of Revelation. That's more about information, isn't it? Well, certainly, I want you to read the book of Revelation, ask questions, dig in. But intimacy isn't about content. It's about the presence of God over anything, over even having your answers to your questions. So this is how we can grow. I'm going to invite you to worship here with us. When we sing, we sing words that describe Jesus. We tell God we're not ashamed to tell God uh, about what we believe in him. We close our eyes or we lift our hands and we give him all of our praise. And we're going to do that now. So I want to invite you to simply bow your heads and to pray with me, please. God, I want to just pause in this moment and thank you for this letter. I want to thank you for the ways in which you come alongside of your church. And at times the church needs correction, Lord. And so I pray that you would just have your way in each one of our hearts as we learn to return to this love, this first love that you have for us, God. God, I pray that in this place we would, we would hear these words, that we would see this warning, and that we would lead in love and in unity and in the grace that you've called us to, God. So we sing these words to you now and we lift up our voices in adoration of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.